Hello, this is Rusty Reno on the Editor's Desk podcast here at First Things in First Things World Headquarters in New York City. And I'm delighted to have with me, remotely sadly, but to have with me Daryl Paul, Professor of Political Science at Williams College and author of Prohibition Revisited, a review in the February 2022 issue a review of Smashing the Liquor Machine, A Global History of Prohibition. Welcome, Daryl. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Rusty. So, you know, in the beginning of the review, you observe, and it was kind of interesting, that Howard Zinn's famous book, notorious book, I suppose, in some circle, People's History of the United States, he never mentions prohibition. That is a kind of shocking omission given, arguably, if you're going to say the sort of 10 most significant political cultural uh, events in American history, at least since the founding, wouldn't you rank prohibition in, the, in that top 10 list? I think not only is prohibition tremendously important, right, as in a, a historical moment in America, but it also plays exactly into the things that Zinn claims to be really interested in. He's interested in bottom-up political movements. He's interested in kind of mass social uh, activism, and prohibition was definitely those things. I think going back, poking around in Zinn's book, I think he perhaps mentions it, like literally says the word prohibition once in the book. Um, but certainly he doesn't talk about it at all. Um, yeah, I think he's he's just wholly uninterested in the episode. Why, why would that be the case, you think? Any speculations there? Well, I mean, my guess, and really it's kind of reflecting on on the book, right, the Smashing the Liquor Machine book by, uh, by Schrad, is that it doesn't fit the narrative that Zinn wants to tell. It certainly doesn't, I think, fit the narrative that Schrad wants to tell in this book either, um, because prohibition shows that there was a lot of, shall we say, conservative populist popular sentiment. Um, one of the things that's interesting in Shrad's book, and, and, and I compliment him for it in the review, is that I think it tells us some interesting stories about a lot of left progressive socialist activists who are also anti-alcohol out activists. Um, I think he overplays their importance quite a bit, but they're there. They're relevant. But certainly, I think when Zinn was writing, um, the standard story about prohibition was it was Protestant, reactionary, small town, white, all of the things that somebody like Howard Zinn would oppose and think is bad. And so therefore, just doesn't fit the story that he wants to tell about mass politics in America. He wants to say the masses have always been on the left. And it's just not true. I think I look back on prohibition and find left-right distinctions not to be very relevant. In this sense, it clearly was a moment of peak moralism in American public life. But there's a left moralism and a right moralism. <laughs> and yeah, absolutely. And now in your review, the leading characters in, in Frederick Douglass, I, you, you note, was a prohibitionist. He's an anti-alcohol guy, as well as obviously an abolitionist, abolitionist slavery. And I mean, it would be absurd to think of Frederick Douglass as on the right. Um, 
but then but then abolitionism itself was also not a left right it, it, it's difficult to frame that as a left or a right issue isn't it maybe the best kind of conclusion to draw i think from your observation rusty which i think is right is that our terms aren't really as trans historical as we want them to be i mean our whole language of left and right comes out of the french revolution Um, But even in just the, you know, 200 plus years since then, the definitions have changed. And so, um, yeah, maybe that's probably the better understanding that rather than kind of use the terms that we become accustomed to today and slap them on people of 100 or 150 years ago, we should try to kind of take them as they presented themselves and, and their own values. I associate prohibition with Methodism. <laughs> but but it is, uh, I'm wondering, do we have these uh, reform movements in American life? Uh, and there was a connection, wasn't there, between abolitionism, uh, women's suffrage, and prohibition? Absolutely. Um, the churches, Protestant churches, were a big part of, of this story as well, and kind of big uh, temperance organizations, right? The Women's Christian Temperance Movement, or uh, Union, I think, uh, can't recall the exact name, uh, it was probably the biggest women's movement in the history of the country. Um, and that's easily forgotten and kind of brushed under the rug. Um, all of these things kind of came together, I think, in many ways, because it's an attempt to defend the family and to look at the troubles that alcohol was causing to the family, particularly the immigrant family. And I certainly don't want to suggest that there wasn't any nativism or race consciousness in the prohibition movement. Obviously, there was. Somebody like Schrad in the book talks a bit about that. But I think the kind of key moral concern was the concern over the family, was concern over the kinds of lives people were living in cities. And it's easy for us, right, in the, the day that we live in to think about things like sanitation that just didn't exist in cities 150 200 years ago. And so um, and so I think there is was right this larger concern. Uh, alcohol was thought to be a big contributor to the breakdown of the family. And I think with good reason. Was the settlement house movement also uh, anti-alcohol? That I, I don't know. I don't uh, know. I that's an interesting... Because we, we... There was a, a urbanization, industrialization... Uh, really did create a tremendous social upheavals in American society after the Civil War. And there were all these efforts to ameliorate or more radical people to transform or in some way uh, um, uh, 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 deal with these kinds of problems. And as you point out, alcoholism, alcohol, drunkenness, and so forth, it's all wrapped up in all kinds of uh, different kinds of uh, social pathologies. And, and certainly there's the kind of traditional critique, and, and really traditional just means, I, I would say, post-World War II, uh, kind of from the 50s to 60s. The post-World War II critique of prohibition was that it was very much a kind of a nativist, anti-immigrant movement. Mm-hmm. And there probably or certainly was some elements of that. Um, but looking at the kinds of social maladies that immigrants were living in and experiencing uh, and manifesting in major cities, 
the New Yorks, the Chicagos, the Philadelphias, whatnot of America in the late 19th and early 20th centuries uh, was also a, a real concern. And so I think it's important, right? And Shred does this in the book to, to put uh, some of the prohibition movement in that context of attempts to ameliorate people's lives. What about, uh, you know, you, Jack Grasser, you point out that in this, in this piece that alcohol consumption and Western culture have a long history, <laughs> which I, I guess I, I, I never really thought about that. that it, 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 there's a kind of uniquely central role to alcohol in Western culture. And, and not just kind of a central role, but, but yeah, I, in, in reading Shrad's book and, and reading around it to write the review, I was kind of surprised as well how different the West is from really any other civilization in the world in terms of the level of alcohol consumption the Westerners have engaged in really for five, six, seven hundred years. I mean, this is not a recent development by any means. It's not to say that alcohol is unknown to other civilizations. Obviously, it is. But the kind of alcohol that was typically drunk was a very low alcohol content. And it wasn't a, a, a sort of fully integrated into their diet and culture the way it was among Europeans. And then obviously um, uh, with, uh, with the discovery of the Americas and, and colonialism uh, kind of spreading all throughout the world. So that's a really important part, I think, of the story of, of alcohol, how tremendously integrated it is into Western civilization. Are there speculations about why that's the case? That's a good question. I, I could only say that Europeans turned to alcohol in the Middle Ages, right, and started drinking alcohol at really high volumes as a substitute for water. And so there are, there are arguments, right? You, you'll, you'll see these arguments from kind of macro historians and historical political economy work thinking about civilizations like India and China. So much of the role of the state in those societies was the provision of water. And so building these tremendous systems of water transportation in India, in China, to provide for agriculture in particular, but also to try to control rivers that were out of control. That's much of the history of China in particular. And so I think in these very kind of large scale, and at least for their time, highly urbanized societies, the provision of water was a central task of the state. And I don't think that was the case at all in Europe. And so my sense, and again, I, I don't know a great deal about the history of this, but my sense is that the provision of water was just a lot more successful in places like South Asia and East Asia compared to Europe. And so therefore, Europeans, if they're looking for something safe to drink, they're turning to alcohol in a way that people in South Asia, people in East Asia, perhaps need to as much. Right. So beer and wine become a potable way, I think, the way to get your hydration. Sure. Like and, and, right, exactly. And, and so much of the rest of the world, right, the Americas, Africa, are very low population parts of the world, population density. I mean, obviously, there, you know, there, there are some of the uh, Native American civilizations um, that have higher population density. But, but on the whole, um, I think that lower population density is is probably going to play a role here as well into why alcohol doesn't become particularly important 
in their society then, compared to Europe. And then there's early modern advances in the West that lead to distillation and very high, I mean, hard liquor is what we would call these days. Yeah, exactly. So uh, distillation is not invented by the Europeans, but it's popularized by the Europeans. Um, and it comes in originally as the creation of medicine. I mean, it's interesting to, to learn about the centrality of alcohol as a medicinal drug. Now, whether it did any good is another question, but certainly if you look in, in, in the literature in the 1500s and the 1600s in Europe, lots of doctors are prescribing what we would call right distilled spirits um, to their patients. And then the first in my, in my knowledge of the history, the first great alcohol crisis is the, the gin mills of London. And uh, so there have been constant efforts since the early modern period to uh, try to limit the destructive effects of alcohol. Sure. And it goes beyond or before, I should say, the gin craze, right, of the, of the early 1700s in England, although that one is probably the most definitive for the imposition of state power, right? The state is really trying quite hard um, to eliminate at least a particular form of alcohol. They're trying to eliminate gin. Uh, ultimately, they're, they're not successful in doing so. But you can go back further than that. You can go back um, to the Restoration when Charles II, um, after his father's head is cut off, you have the Republic uh, in or the Commonwealth in England, and then uh, Charles, is, uh, Charles II is restored to the throne. And he has this proclamation about the problems of alcohol and debauchery. Uh, you get the rise of drinking establishments in England in the 1600s. Uh, you have fears about alcohol consumption that come out of the uh, Reformation in places like Geneva and certainly in New England and, and other places, especially where you get um, more of the kind of radical reformation. So the concerns about alcohol and, and overconsumption of alcohol really are pretty much as old as the mass consumption of alcohol. <laughs> One of the books of the 20th century looking at prohibition uh, sees it as a struggle for middle-class dominance over the urban poor. So, right, Main Street America reasserting its power over the urban um, masses. Uh, I think, what, what is that? This is a symbolic crusade, I think, is the title of the book. Um, and, and in any event, that, I mean, there's some plausibility of that. I mean, obviously, there are many other factors as well. And I'm kind of wondering, is this, I've always thought that there's always a, American tendency for, and maybe it goes back to our religious Puritan roots, there's always this American tendency for the good people, quote, scare quotes around good, to, uh, to um, get very anxious uh, to reassert their control over public culture. And prohibition, uh, uh, the, the temperance movement had that quality. And I'm wondering, I mean, is it being reprised today with all the furor over masks and vaccines? And it, 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 I look at I look at uh, the terrain of our debate, our, our late pandemic debates, as opposed to early pandemic. 
late pandemic debates, and it seems to fall into that. Uh, whether the word middle class is right, but let's call it the university class. Um, eager for people to get in line and do what they're do the good, the good and virtuous thing, just as the temperance women's temperance league, you know, wanted you know these malfeasant men out in the saloons to be good husbands and so on. Well, I'm rambling. So, any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. So Gus Field's book, right, Symbolic Crusade, comes out in the '60s, and yeah, it's quite famous and it's quite well-received and really influential in the social sciences. And, and I think you kind of summarized his, his argument there. Um, and he calls it symbolic crusade because his interpretation of prohibition is, is really it's all about a, a politics of symbolism. And so alcohol becomes symbolic of this divide between the right kinds of people and the wrong kinds of people. And what I think is interesting, and especially as you kind of connect it to the politics of, of today or, you know, the pandemic politics that we've been living with over the last few years now is that social groups can really take just about anything and turn it into a symbol that is a referent of their group and the differences between their group and some other group. And so we've obviously done it in the United States uh, around masks, uh, around just sort of attitudes towards responding well, yeah. to COVID in general. Somebody asked me, well, why do people wear masks outside in New York? And I say, well, it's just to reassure people that they didn't vote for Donald Trump. <laughs> I don't think that's a bad analysis to tell you. It's truth. a little bit crude, but it always brings up a, a, a laugh of recognition when I say that to people. Let's, let's shift gears here. So and it's an interesting observation you make at the end. You suggest that prohibition was actually successful. We look back and it's seen as the great, the greatest failed social policy in American history, right? It, you know, bred organized crime and ultimately it was repealed and, and it, it, it was unsuccessful. But you point out that, well, actually, uh, it moderated alcohol consumption and we never really caught up to pre, we, haven't, we didn't catch up to pre-prohibition levels of consumption until this, until my generation. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I think the evidence is really quite good that prohibition worked. That is, it had a real effect on a reduction in alcohol consumption in the United States and a reduction in various kinds of social and health maladies that come from an excess of alcohol consumption. The evidence is actually pretty good on that score. And there, yeah, that effect lasted beyond repeal. It, it did. It did. So um, it the comparison I make often is is when uh, people would debate Donald Trump's border wall, right? And and the old saw was, you know, show me a twenty foot wall and I'll show you a twenty one foot ladder, right? And of course, the goal of a border wall or the goal of prohibition is certainly not zero. No one believes that you can actually have zero, say, illegal immigration or zero alcohol consumption but it is to make a market reduction in those things. So prohibition, for example, it did not bring alcohol consumption to zero in the United States, even during prohibition itself, because obviously people still drank and people evaded the law, et cetera, et cetera. When prohibition was repealed, 
it uh, the alcohol consumption went up to, and this is just based on work that that's been done by economists. There was a couple of economists in the '90s that did some of this work, and a few more uh, in the 2000s, and they show with some pretty good data that alcohol consumption levels returned to about 60 to 70 percent of their pre-prohibition levels of consumption right after um, right after the repeal of prohibition. So when you go down to sort of about 1950 or so you've got about 60 to 70% of what it was before prohibition was imposed. Pretty substantial decline. Indeed, it's about a third, right? About a third reduction and and a pretty uh, long run reduction, right? For over a generation. It's really not until the 1970s, as you suggested, Rusty, that alcohol consumption per capita in America returns to pre-prohibition levels. But one of the things that's interesting too is that when the alcohol consumption levels return to their pre-prohibition levels in America, many more people are drinking in the home or they're drinking in, um, shall we say, more kind of familiar social settings. They're not drinking in pubs or bars or whatever else it might be that was very characteristic of pre-prohibition drinking. Before prohibition, drinking was heavily concentrated among men and it was men who would gather with other men in bars and drink and drink heavily. After prohibition, it became much more something that people did in the home where you would have a party and your neighbors over and these kinds of things. And so even if the levels returned by the 1970s, the way that Americans drank um, became quite different as well. And so that would also be very helpful uh, for reducing many of the maladies that would come from overconsumption of alcohol. One of my observations is that I was raised in Episcopalian and the difference between an Episcopalian and an Irish Catholic is that an Irish Catholic thinks that people who drink at home, that's a sure sign of alcoholism. <laughs> for an Episcopalian, somebody who goes out to bars, that's a sure sign of alcoholism. <laughs> but see, there you go. We need our symbols to differentiate ourselves from other groups. <laughs> Final question. I, I just look back. I remember there's a, I've been to, there's a, there's a small monument, temperance monument in Washington, D.C. I think it's on Pennsylvania Avenue, maybe in the corner of 14th and Pennsylvania Avenue. And it's a four-sided little pavilion, faith, hope, love. And then the fourth, <laughs> you know, supernatural virtue, temperance, you know, the fourth, the, the fourth theological virtue, temperance. It just seems like so long ago and so impossible. Um, I mean, we can't even regulate heroin use. And, and in, 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 you know, people here in New York, I've seen people shoot up in public. Uh, so the idea of alcohol prohibition just seems light years away. Why is that? Why does it seem so impossibly far away culturally, politically? My grandparents, I was thinking about it. My grandparents, to your point about reduced consumption, they were by no means, all, none of the four of them, were by no means anti-alcohol, they drank, but they grew up to adulthood under the prohibition regime. And they were, they were very, very moderate drinkers. It just was not important to them. Mm -hmm. uh, but gosh, that, <laughs> that experience just seems so remote. I think this is one of the real serious shortcomings of, of Schrad's analysis kind of towards the end of his book that I talk about a little in the review, 
Um, he seems to want to blame neoliberalism. I guess everybody on the left wants to blame neoliberalism for everything that's bad about the world, or at least bad about America today. Um, and, and, and my critique of Schrad's analysis is that you have certainly a kind of libertarianism on the right, but you have a libertarianism on the left as well. And I think that combination is exactly what makes something like prohibition almost impossible to conceive today. In fact, when it comes to drugs, America's moving in the opposite direction, right? Many, many states in the US, Massachusetts, where I live is one of them, has uh, completely legalized uh, recreational marijuana. And now we have many stores uh, that I drive by all the time uh, that, that, are, that are selling. And so I think it is this kind of libertarian cultural sentiment that is very popular, especially among elites uh, on the right and on the left. But what's interesting is that if you look at, say, for example, consumption patterns of alcohol today, you have a very large number of Americans. I don't recall exactly what the percentage is, but I think it's somewhere like in the range of maybe 40-ish percent who consume zero alcohol. They do not drink at all. And then you have a very uh, a large percentage of Americans that drink relatively little. And so a huge amount of alcohol consumption comes from a very small number of people in America. It's not that Americans, I think as a whole, are libertarians who say we should all be free to do whatever we want and damn the consequences. I think in this moment of, of COVID and the really uh, extensive reach of the state, it might feel that way. We might look at the truckers up in Canada and see, yeah, that's the real DNA of North America. It's libertarianism. But I think it's not. There's certainly an interest in liberty and there's certainly an interest in um, not having the state extend itself indefinitely. But I think there's also tremendous interest in America about pursuing things that I think we would rightly call the common good. And that is certainly a way people in the age of prohibition talked about what they were doing. They were trying to accomplish something that would be good for all. And so that's a language I think that's deeply ensconced in American history. And I think it's a language that's available for us right now. Maybe we're not on the verge of, of uh, banning things like alcohol, um, but maybe there are other things and that Americans could really try to limit and reduce and reduce access to that really a large number of Americans would really get behind and support. Well, thank you, Daryl, for your time. And uh, it was a delightful interview. Uh, thanks for being on the podcast. Always happy to be here, Rusty. Great.